Hey, uh, we're gonna we're gonna jump right into it here because we got a really big section to work through today. Um, and uh, just to give you kind of an update on where we're at, we're working through Acts. We've been doing this now for three falls. So we did first section of Acts three years ago, uh, second section, well, two years ago, uh, the second section of Acts last year, and then the last section of Acts this year. And we're getting close to getting all the way done with everything. So today we're in Acts chapter uh, 21 and 22. Um, and I just noticed that says 22 verse 1. It should start in 21. So I'm going to read a big section. You can follow along in the app where the scriptures are. Uh, and you can also follow along in those pew Bibles, those ones that are right there in front of you. You can also, at any time you come and visit our church, if you want a Bible, just take it. Take it home. If you want to give it to somebody, take it. We hope that these disappear over time and that we continue to replace them with new ones. Uh, and that's just kind of how it works. We want to make sure that everybody has a chance to look at or open a Bible. Since we're going to be in Acts chapter 21, somebody find that and tell me what page it's on. It's probably... I was going to say it's probably close to 954, but 957. Okay, so if you're following along in that Bible, 957... Um, I'm going to start in Acts chapter 21 uh, in verse 27. Oh, there we go. That is right. Um, and today Paul basically has been working his way uh, back to Jerusalem. Last week we talked about how he got close to Ephesus. He called the elders over. They had a kind of a quick meeting. Um, and it was his way of saying goodbye to them. And they did it in tears because they had worked together in ministry for so long and had the same goals and really had developed close relationships and, uh, and so Paul is still working his way towards Jerusalem. Uh, just before this section, now I, I do say we go verse by verse, and that is on purpose, but I'm cutting out a, a section of 21, the beginning of it. I'm just going to tell you what happens, so you can go verify it later if you want. But as Paul's working his way back, he keeps stopping and seeing people. He stops in one place, sees some people, and they have like a great you know, moment. He stops in another place, sees some people. There's actually like this nice cinematic Thing. It says that they stopped on the beach together and they kneeled down to pray. Like you can almost like see it, right? Like visually, it's like a some sort of you know movie. And Paul, each place he goes, the people there are getting more and more aggressive, telling him not to go to Jerusalem. Like, hey, this is not going to work out for you. And Paul has already said multiple times that he knows that wherever he goes, when he goes to Jerusalem, for sure, he's going to be dealing with problems. And he already feels prepared to go ahead and do that. At one point, he stops and people pray over him. And there's, a, um, there's a, uh, someone there who's prophesying. And they basically take his belt. They say, hey, give me your belt. And they wrap it around his arms and his hands. They, they bind him and they say, the Jews are going to hand you over to the Gentiles just like this if you go to Jerusalem. Please don't go. Everybody's warning him. Please don't go. Please don't go. Please don't go. And he says, almost in tears... Hey, what are you guys trying to do? I know that I'm going to go to Jerusalem, that that's where God's calling me, and I know there's going to be a problem. And he's like, I am willing to give up my life if that's what it takes. That's what he says to them when they prophesy over him. So Paul is dead set on going to Jerusalem, even though he knows there's going to be an issue when he goes. God's already prepared him for it, and yet he still does it. And we talked a lot about through this entire, you know, uh, through looking through the entire book of Acts, that it, just because we feel like we're going to deal with difficulty, or in this case, even potentially put our life on the line, that that doesn't mean that God's not in something. God calls us to hard things. He doesn't promise us protection from evil happening to us. He doesn't promise us that nothing bad's going to happen in our lives. I 
feel like when we get to a place where something bad does happen in our lives and we start to question whether God is good or God is involved, I feel like it's not fair because God has gone out of his way to tell Paul, to tell Jesus, like, hey, no matter what, you're still going to deal with hardship. It doesn't mean I won't be with you through those things, but I'm not going to protect you. I'm not here to bounce all the bad things out of your life. You live in a broken world. Terrible things happen. We're all going to deal with them. You aren't special when you follow Jesus in that way. You, are, you have God's presence in your life to carry you through those times. You have the church around you, hopefully a community of people around you, to carry you through those times. But it doesn't mean that your life is now going to be perfectly healthy and you're going to be perfectly wealthy and you can measure your, you know, how much God loves you and how much he's involved in your life based on the success of things and how healthy and wealthy you are. If, if that were the way like, to judge that, like I am not qualified to be the pastor. Like, I haven't had health. In, actually, since I planted this church, I have had no health. So I blame you guys. It's your fault. So, All right, so verse tw- uh, chapter 21, we're going to start with verse 27. Paul uh, is basically found his way to Jerusalem. One of the ways that they're trying to mitigate the problem with the Jews in uh, Jerusalem who will have a problem with Paul is that they've asked Paul to, to, to go through this ritual of taking on a couple of people who are ready to make a Nazarite vow. And that's basically just a 30-day commitment to a specific thing. And the, the Jewish person would shave their head. At the end of the 30 days, there would be an offering that gets given. It's a common thing for people to do uh, when they're, I don't know, getting ready for something or transitioning in some way. It's kind of a moment for them to stop and to take a vow that they're going to follow God very specifically during those 30 days. And they said, hey, Paul, since people are upset with you because you, you know, when you preach about Jesus, you leave out all the Jewish stuff, like, hey, maybe this would be a good way for them to know that you're not actually against the Jews, that you are for these customs. You grew up as a, as a Jew. You're not, like, you don't hate the law. So why don't you sponsor these four guys, pay their way, like, make the offerings for them, and that'll, that'll appease some of these Jewish people who are, really upset with how sort of uh, you've gotten rid of some of the customs when you've been allowing Gentiles to become Christians. And Gentiles just means anyone who's not a Jew, right? Anyone who's not Jewish. All right, so he's in Jerusalem. He's going through this, this um, custom with these guys just to prove a point and make a connection. And then we're going to pick it up with verse 27. When seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia, you should read Ephesus right there. That's what they're talking about when they say the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the holy place. So they start with the allegations. Now, Paul is going through this custom just to try to smooth things over with some of these very religious Jewish People. He just basically wants to try to create peace and create some unity. And in doing so, he doesn't have to go through these rituals, but he chooses to go through these rituals. And I, I just want to stop and say, like, this is, it's kind of an interesting thing. Like, sometimes when people are trying to unravel Paul's theology, they don't understand why he's doing this. Because the, the new covenant requires none of the, that part of the law. It doesn't require sacrifices in a certain way, or it doesn't require festivals in a certain way. It doesn't require eating a certain way. It doesn't require circumcision. They've already decided on all this. Back in Acts chapter 15, 
They had the question, how Jewish do you have to become to become a Christian? And they said, hey, we're going to just write to people and we're going to ask them, stay away from the blood of strangled animals, stay away from sexual immorality. And these two things, right, these two things, that will, these two things would rip a church apart of Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews be, becoming the, the same church. But other than that, we're going to leave the rest of it aside. And anyone who wants to come to Jesus, they don't have to go through all these rituals. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to eat a certain way. They don't have to dress a certain way. They don't have to do all this stuff. Paul knows you don't have to do it, and yet he chooses to do it. And the question is, why does he do that? And I think he's trying to bring peace into the situation by choosing unity. There's a lot of ways out there that we can create unity with other believers, other churches. If we agree on the essentials, the things that are most important, then we can find unity in a lot of other ways. So, you know, you may have found yourself potentially at a wedding or at a funeral in a church that's not like your church. And there might be uh, so, like customs attached to that. Right? I found myself in a Catholic church at a wedding, and it was like the question of whether I should go up and receive communion. That's a really tricky question. Catholics have a lot of interesting beliefs about communion. They probably wouldn't even welcome me to come and receive communion. If you grew up Catholic, you probably know that there's like some really interesting things that they believe about communion that like would, should set... Uh, uh, the average Christian, the way that we've done, we do communion here, the way that most Christians do communion, it's a little bit different than the way the Catholics do it. And so the question is, do I partake in that moment? You know, and I always just kind of feel like, hey, if I can create unity between people who could share some commonality, then I'm in. I'm ready to do that. I don't really actually care very much about denominations and about specific theologies that are non-essential like, at this church, we have a few things that we hold dearly, that we hold on to, that we'd be willing to fight and separate for. That we'd say, these are things important enough for us to be very clear about and make sure that we agree on, and these are the core things that hold us together. And to be honest, those core things are shared by probably 75% of Christian churches out there. There's, most churches, we could see eye to eye, work alongside, create unity with, uh, except for probably just a very small amount of things. But then there's a lot of other stuff that falls into a category of being non-essential, where we just don't have to have agreement, and it doesn't matter if we agree or not. And we hold those things very open, right? If you want to know what the things are that we hold very closed-handed, you can look at our statement of theology that's on our website. It's in a member covenant. If you become a member, it's something that you sign off on. Those things we hold pretty dearly. The rest of the stuff, right, how the end times are going to happen, I don't need to agree with you. If the earth was created in seven days, I do not have to agree. I don't agree with you, probably. Right? Like, there's a lot of things that we can disagree on, and there's a very few amount of things that we have to have agreement on. I think Paul, he sees that there's a possibility to create unity here, and he goes through the, the ritual that he doesn't need to do in order to create a connection. It doesn't work. That's the other thing. Is like sometimes you feel like you might make the step to create unity, and it doesn't really doesn't really work. So if you're filling in the um, if you're filling in the uh, the fill-ins in the app, the first one is unity. And Paul says later, "Hey, I will become all things to all men, to save some. To the Jews, I'll become a Jew. To those who don't believe, like I'll become what it takes to reach them." That's his philosophy. That should be our philosophy too. How do we find ways to unify with people who might share some of those beliefs and build bridges, right? Connect 
Be kingdom-minded. It's one of our values here, that we are big K kingdom people. We care more about unifying than we do about you know, driving a wedge between different churches or denominations or theologies. Okay? So he tries that, but it doesn't work. They start to accuse him of things that he hasn't done. They say he brought some uh, Ephesian Christian believers who aren't Jewish into an area of the temple that they're not supposed to be in. And by the way, at that time, if you entered into that area, and even the Romans allowed for the Jews to do this, if you entered into the area that you weren't supposed to be in as a non-Jew, you could be put to death for that. So this was a very serious offense, and even the Romans allowed the Jews to do this. And so they, they charge him with basically defiling the temple by bringing Ephesus Christians into the temple. And it says in verse 29, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused. The people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran to the crowd where the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers. They stopped beating Paul. Oh no, dad's here, right? Like this is not a good situation. You don't want to be seen instigating a riot or being in the middle of this kind of ruckus because the Romans took very seriously trying to bring peace into that place. Now they had had a lot of people try to start uh, uprisings against the Roman government. So they pretty much snuffed this stuff out real fast with no tolerance at all. Okay, so this was a bad, bad moment. Uh, the, the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another. And since the commander could not get the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek, he replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? So this guy's heard about a guy who started a riot and brought 4,000, uh, you know, it, here it says terrorists, but like these would have been um, zealots who were willing to kill, uh, would have been generally after killing people like contract type killers. Like it was, it was really bad people. 4,000 of them hanging out in the desert. He thinks, oh, they're back. This is a problem. Uh, Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. So this is what Paul, he, the next thing he tries after he tries unity is he tries reason, right? He decides, let me make a case. If this were Hamilton, Paul would be saying, I spoke my way out. Just, just me, only me. Every time he gets into a trouble, he says, hey, let me talk to everybody. Let me just give me a microphone and let me go and I'll fix this situation. The last couple of times he's tried this, it hasn't worked. They didn't let him speak in the riot that happened in Ephesus. And now it doesn't matter what he says. He's about to get himself in trouble, right? But Paul has always found a way to speak to people. And even in the next few chapters, he's going to defend himself in front of more important people as he's on his way to Rome. And he finds ways to connect with those people and share the gospel in places where it has never been talked about. It's, it's amazing to watch Paul do this. He often does this with no regard for his own life or his own well-being. So for him, the gospel is the most important thing. When he says it's Christ crucified and nothing else, he's putting it on display. That's what he's all about. 
You know, and we've been, we've been talking about this. Like, I know that seems really extreme, and you might ask yourself, like, how does that apply to my life? Like, I'm probably not going to stand up in front of an angry mob and give a, you know, whatever, talk about my faith in front of an angry mob. But the priority is there for Paul. And I, I wonder if the priority is there for us. Like, there's going to be a lot of opportunities over the next year or two to separate with people over a lot of issues that seem very important. And I wonder if any of those issues are important as the gospel. Right? Like, are we going to make a big deal out of every single news cycle that comes our way over the next year or two? Or are we going to make a big deal over the gospel? Like, are we going to go out of our way to make sure that we make a point? Or are we going to go out of our way to make sure that we make a difference in people's lives? You want to know what uh, a Christian looks like based on, you know, that question that we have? I mean, man, a Christian is somebody who can live at peace with people and take the opportunity to share the gospel when it presents itself and keep that as the primary focus of their life. Like, I don't think enough people have their priorities in line, understanding that we're called to put the gospel on display in the way that we live and how we treat people and the way that we talk to people. We would much rather make a point about whatever it is that seems to be important in that moment. But it's not important. Things we were arguing over two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, they go by the wayside, a new thing comes. Like, we're arguing over things that are just temporary and in the spotlight right now, and all we're doing is creating a division between us and someone who needs to see and hear the gospel in our lives. Like, pay attention to your priorities. Where is the gospel on that list of things? And are you more interested in making a point, or are you more interested in making a difference? Paul says, I don't care. Give me the opportunity. If they kill me, fine. I'll go out talking about Jesus. So as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked me, I say something. Oh, sorry, let me kick it up. Uh, After receiving commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, this is the worst translation ever, uh, depending on which Bible translation you have, it either says he spoke in Hebrew or he spoke in a Hebrew dialect, which at the time everyone spoke in Aramaic. It's unclear exactly, but I will make the case that Paul speaks to the crowd in Hebrew. Now, the Hebrew that they, that they spoke in then wasn't exactly the same as the one that was written in the Old Testament. It was kind of more of a dialect, right? But he speaks to the crowd in their language to make a connection with them. He's trying to get them on his side. He's trying to say, hey, let me explain this. I'm going to give you a reason for this. I'm going to use reason here. I'm going to get in front of you, and I'm going to speak to you in your language, and I'm going to help you understand what's driving this situation. And in this way, he's relating. He's trying to say, hey, we're the same. I'm going to make a connection with you. And this is what he says about his life and their life. First, he speaks to them in their dialect, right? Either way we read that, he speaks to them in their dialect. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in, again, it says Aramaic, it really should be Hebrew, Um, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born into Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. So Paul immediately connects to somebody that they know. Gamaliel was, I know this is a weird way to say it, but he was a rock star to the Jews, man. This guy was the smartest And he didn't really talk much about Saul, which would have been his pupil, but he did say one thing about Saul that was written that we have that's been brought down through history. He said he could not get enough books 
poor Saul because he just went through books like nothing. He didn't have enough for him to read. He said Saul was one of those students that he could not give him enough information. Okay? So he had this relationship with Gamaliel, who was this very well-respected high priest person who trained Paul. And what Paul is doing is he's sharing his testimony, and he's saying, I am like you. Right? I am the most conscientious Jew that exists. I have done the most amount of work, read the most amount of stuff, had the perfect theology, went through the absolutely perfect upbringing. He was so smart in Tarsus that they shipped him off to Jerusalem so he could learn under the best high priest there was. That high priest said about him that he was one of his best students and he couldn't possibly give him enough books to actually, that he would, because he just went through them so fast. Okay, so he says, I was a Jew born in Tarsus and brought up in this city and I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous as God for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As a high priest and all the council can, can themselves testify, people in the crowd could have been there when Paul was released to go and, and persecute Christians. They could have been the ones who signed off and gave him the papers that allowed him to do it. They could have like physically been in the room so he could point to them and say, hey, these guys can attest to this. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon... I came near Damascus. Suddenly, a bright light from heaven shone around, flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you, Nazareth, who you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus, because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see. So Paul shares his testimony. He says, look, I was exactly where you were. I was as Jewish as it gets. I was brought up under the most Jewish person. I was as zealous as it possibly. You're about to kill me. I killed plenty of people. I've taken this to its end point. And I can tell you that even this, right, if you meet Jesus, everything will change. Your identity in being Jewish will fall away in comparison to a new identity that Jesus will give you. That if you meet Jesus, everything about your life that you thought was important, that you thought was the most important thing, all of that will seem very small in comparison to the life that Jesus can bring into our lives. Like, he makes it as clear as possible. This testimony is, here's what my life looked like, and then I met Jesus, and now it is like this. I was the most extreme Jew, and then I met Jesus, and now I am the most extreme gospel preacher you'll find. Go ahead and kill me. It won't stop me. I've already been stoned. I've already almost died multiple times. I've already been sort of brought back to life after a stoning. Like I've been through this. I know what God's capable of. And even if I die in this moment right here, that's okay with me. Because I'll die having done exactly what God told me to do. Like, that's a testimony that's worth something. And I, I think, like, we miss... We... I think often we think that our theology is so much more important than it needs to be when we're sharing the gospel. Often the most important, the, the best tool that you have is your story. 
you start to tell someone your story of how you met Jesus and what it did in your life, they don't argue with you. When you start sharing, hey, this is my experience. Before I knew Jesus, here's what was going on in my life. Then I met Jesus. Now here's what my life looks like moving forward. No one stops you and says, well, that's not exactly right. You know, where's the reference to that, right? Like you can share your story with somebody and it disarms them from being in a defensive stance, from wanting to argue with you. Paul's saying, let me build a couple bridges. Hey guys, I know what it's like to be a Jew. I'm exactly like you. In fact, I took it all the way to the end. And I can tell you, it's not the same thing. It's not as good as what Jesus can bring into your life. You guys are zealous. I can see that. You're about to put me to death. He's actually almost in a weird Like, way to go, guys. Like, you're, you're doing a great job. Like, as far as Jews go, you're doing great. But this isn't the end of it. If you meet Jesus, this can all change. And here's what happened in my life. And he makes the connection to them. And everybody, it says, there's like a hush that comes over this crowd. It's going to tell us this in a minute. That it's like totally quiet. Like you could hear a pin drop. They're listening intently to what Paul has to say. But there's one thing that sort of changes everything. So he's, uh, verse 14. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witnesses to people of what you have seen and heard, and now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. Then I returned to Jerusalem. I was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your, tes- the, your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. You're like, that's not a word we use. Gentiles just means anyone who's not Jewish. The word that would have been used in their language would have been akin to um, a word that... It would have been been like a derogatory word used to describe any group of people. Like, there would have been a little bit of... uh, nastiness associated with it, and a little bit of like, the, it was almost said like Gentiles, like Gentiles, oof, right? That was kind of the way that it was said. And when he says, go, I will send you away to the Gentiles, look at how Luke records what happens here. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. In fact, in one translation, it might say, until he said this word, Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. Right? What really was exposed in this moment was how much these Jews hated the non-Jewish people on the earth. The word Gentile caused a riot. Everybody was calm, everybody was listening, everybody was waiting to hear. The minute Paul said, hey, let's include more people than just the chosen Jewish people, that's when they decided to to kill him. Paul has chosen to try unity. He's chosen to try reason. He's tried to relate. Now Paul finds himself in an untenable situation and has to sort of uh, grab hold of what he's got left. So it says, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks 
He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. It's kind of funny. Like, we're going to take him in there and figure out why. After we beat him, we're going to figure out why it is that we're beating him. Um, as, they stretch him out, as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. And so the last thing Paul does, he tries unity, he tries reason, he tries to relate. The last one, uh, if you're filling in stuff, is he tries to his rights. He uses his rights in that moment to get himself out of the situation he's in. And what I find so interesting about this is I feel like as Christians, sometimes we think that we're under such persecution, right? We think that the whole world is out to get us. And I want to agree that the culture is moving away from what it means to be a Christian. That the first thing we do is we demand our rights. If you're a follower in Jesus, your rights, they come at the very end. Demanding your rights is not the move to make until you've exhausted every other move possible. As Paul speaks to people in other cultures and deals with Christians who are really in persecution, he tells Christians all over the world to like, live at peace with people, not to create you know, uh, problems between people, not to create arguments that don't mean anything, not to argue over stupid things. At one point he says, like, hey, don't, let's not argue over stupid words. Let's pay attention to keep the main thing the main thing. And I wonder how many of us are thinking, I'm being persecuted, I need to make sure that I grab hold of and exert my rights in the face of this bad, big, bad culture who's against me. And Paul waits until the very last second to invoke that. It's the last thing he brings up, his rights. Now, his rights are going to take him to the place that he wants to go. Weirdly enough, as Paul said, hey, I'm going to make my way to Jerusalem, and then I'm going to make my way to Rome, we see that Paul's rights get him on a ship to another place in front of another guy, on a ship to another place in front of another guy, and he eventually finds his way to the place that God called him to be. It's not the way that he wanted to go, but God literally picks him up out of Jerusalem and brings him to the place that he needs to be because he exerts his rights. I think we just need to be really careful as Christians, right, to say, hey, I have these rights. You need to make sure that you're respecting my rights. I think oftentimes we're called to share the gospel and endure hardship. And the last thing that we're called to do is to bring up the rights that we have. I mean, that's essentially what love looks like and what Christians should be about. We should be about trying to serve other people, trying to put them above ourselves and ahead of ourselves. And one of the things I've often, you know, we got talking in our small group the other night, so I'll just share that because I don't care. If you're in my small group, you're just going to be part of my sermons. That's all there is to it, right? Uh, but we were talking about it. We were like, hey, you know, um, there's certain things you don't really understand until you become a parent. Like, you don't understand how much you love someone or something, right, until you're holding a baby and you start to think, there's like nothing that I wouldn't do to protect this human. Now, you feel that in other ways with family members, spouses, but they're generally people who have a 
They're, they're not as vulnerable. They have you don't have to be the one to protect them all the time. Like you don't feel the same way when you hold that infant, that that infant in your hands. You think there's like nothing I wouldn't do to protect this human. It's weird when they start to get old enough that you don't feel like physically you need to protect them. Like you might need protection from. They're just giant, like baby Hueys who just throw their elbows around and are too big and too awkward and. I'm not pointing out any specific people that may or may not be in this room. Um, but I feel like there's something we learn, and I feel like one of the things that I've learned from having kids, one of the hardest things to teach my own kids is how to give up your rights and your needs for somebody else. It's just not natural. We're not born with this. We don't have this. And as parents, we spend the first parts of our lives giving up everything we can you know, to make sure that that baby has everything that it needs and it gets off to a good... But then there's a point that comes where we have to help them understand, like, yes, you have to give up your rights for your siblings. You have to give up your rights for other people that you meet. Yes, it's not all about you. The world doesn't revolve around you. The, it's not about your selfishness. It's not about what you need. It's, there's so much to this that helping them understand that they need to give up their rights is a really, really hard task to do. I have often been on mission trips with students where they don't really understand this concept until they go to a foreign place and they see how good they have it in their own life and they start to realize how small some of the things that they worry about and are dealing with are that they start to give up their rights in a way that looks like Jesus. It's really hard. You might be struggling with that, and you might be thinking everything's unfair, and the world is against me, and everybody wants to leverage their thing against me, and yet Jesus still says, hey, give up your rights for the people around you. Serve them, put them ahead of you, even when it's difficult, even when you can't find a way to do it. That's what you are called to do. Paul is going to do this over and over and over and over like very consistent and it's that many times I think because it's that hard to do. <laughs> All of us struggle with that. Not just our kids, but us as adults. Every one of us struggle with giving up our rights for other people. And yet that is what we are called to to do. Let me let me land us in prayer here. Jesus, even as we see this example of Paul, would you help us to find ways to bring peace into the relationships that we have in this world, into this culture? Would you help us to, to try to unify people, to try to reason with people, to try to relate to people before we find the place of demanding our rights? God, would our rights be the thing that trails the heart that we have to give and to make other people greater than us. God, would we show what it looks like to be a Christian based on how much we are willing to sacrifice for other people? And I pray, God, that that would be something that is clear at this church, clear in our small groups, clear in our families, clear to our children. God, that it would be something that is seen and felt and caught and repeated. God, this would be a church that loves the world and puts them and ahead of us. Even when we're dealing with persecution, God, let us know that your presence is with us in those times and that you have called us to something greater. In Jesus' name, amen.